welcome back. Hey, been, how are you? It's been a hot minute. Indeed. You know, just living the early music dream day in, day out. Right. Because all I do is win, 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 no if, matter what. If it ain't early, it ain't early. That's what I say. <laughs> exactly. So I'm intrigued about, okay, so our conversation eons ago about form got me thinking a lot, and I've been thinking about it ever since as I listen to music. Now, I will say this may shock you and shock others. I actually do occasionally listen to music of the popular nature. You're kidding me. No, it's weird, right? So like John Dowland. Yeah. No, exactly. Right? Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I think Sting, I think his Sting is his real name. John Dowland <laughs> did a cover of Sting songs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, when I was listening to even last night, I had a hockey game at 11 p.m. It was gnarly. It was amazing. We we lost. We it was bad. Anyway. But on the way to the game and on the way home from the game, I was listening to Muse. Muse is amazing. Yeah. And their album, The Resistance, which kind of like follows the storyline of 1984, which is really cool, has a ton of classical music influence in it. I was listening to Ed Sheeran, some Noah Kahn for you indie music people out there. Wow. Probably have no idea who I'm talking about. Doesn't really matter. Outside of, I, I think about form in classical music and I can kind of see it but my wife has introduced me to a lot of these kind kind of not all the way but kind of indie people yeah musicians and the ones who really make it i can tell in an instant when i hear their song because of the form mm. it's the form it's not just about you know the hook or the melody or the chords or the mood or the vibe or the instruments or the texture or tempo beat whatever the songs i feel the songs and the artists that last through time there's some there's this element of formal cohesion that humans primally love thoughts yeah. well uh i think composers spend a lot of time in their heads trying to figure out how to be new and different but most people listening aren't coming because they want something new and different hmm. they're i think most people are coming because they want to feel something and i think oftentimes i mean that can come from new and different but i think a lot of times when people come with expectations about a musical experience they're interested in feeling something that is familiar enough that it attaches to their um sort of like radar of experiences mm. and speaks to them in a language that they already know. Doesn't mean that it isn't novel or isn't interesting or whatever. It just means that uh, the, the encounter, uh, if it's a totally alien encounter, it's not exact. I don't think people sign themselves up for totally alien encounters. Sometimes they do. Like I like to experience right. it. But right. I think for form has a lot to do with that because I think at a basic level, form is about establishing 
expectations and then either fulfilling mm. them or cleverly subverting them. Yeah. Um, you know, we intentionally don't... to where it's like it keeps the audience or the listener's attention. Right. And I, I love, I think I mentioned it last time, Billy Collins, the poet, his definition of form is whatever keeps a poem from falling apart. Yeah. And I think that in music too, like our, our, you know, our form and analysis teachers, teachers, bless their hearts, like to (laughs) teach us lots of um, names for things, but, and sometimes the nomenclature helps us understand why something holds together or doesn't fall apart. Sometimes it's just a layer of obfuscation and we have to ask ourselves, no, what is it really that keeps this thing from falling apart? But to your indie music example, and I think popular music in general, form is so important. Uh, Form is what makes people excited when they know that they're hearing a pre-chorus. When there's that like, there's that little lift and you're like, oh, here it comes. This is great. And then it is, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. uh, Form is like essential to our are the way that we experience music yeah when i say okay yeah that's so real so here's the two the two examples i think we should discuss now we we talked about some early music things we talked about renaissance pieces Mm -hmm. in regards to form and I, and I think that there, I mean, obviously it's this, it's the same principles throughout time and it's this primal thing of form. That's why I think it's so hard sometimes to really sell true complex medieval music at a concert because mm. the form is, I mean, the form and the architecture is so meticulous, Yeah. but it's a little bit, it's, a, it's defined with kind of primitive uh, methods that we're not really familiar with. So it feels like a different formal language. So even though that there's this like strict, you know, when you think of isorhythmic motets, it's like so strict, mm-hmm. but everything kind of just seems like chaos within that, within each segment. And it's really hard to kind of latch onto. So when we talk about maybe moving from the Renaissance forward, it's really the same like these these principles i mean i guess you could even say that the principles are the same in the medieval time period but it's a little bit easier for us to grasp i think from the renaissance going forward just yeah, as I, a listener i think what's what's interesting is to note that some of that early early music that you're describing that feels a little bit impenetrable from a formal perspective now mm-hmm actually has a lot of things in common with um, modern minimalist composers mm, where yeah true I think the in those in those cases um, you get back down to the same question what makes this what makes this thing hold together mm. and um, I think the difference in those cases is a sense of goal orientation because mm. uh, you know pre-baroque, we had ideas about counterpoint that were gradually coalescing into some norms for doubling and spacing that became common practice tonality. Right. And common practice tonality, including those norms for doubling and spacing, also had this uh, clarification of the dipole between tonic and dominant 
and yeah. and the kind of like templated dance moves for getting between the two yeah through the subdominant basically and right so you have this harmonic idea that helps solidify these formal kind of bricks yeah whereas yes. i mean you can talk about the double leading tone cadence all day long which would be fantastic and i would love it because it's the best cadence in all the in all the land hashtag landini hashtag it's so good so the uh but you can't but again it's not necessarily that wouldn't i wouldn't consider that a harmonic brick the same way you consider this sort of doubling and spacing idea that's kind of no i mean think it's about the, not, the double it's leading not the same. cadence is a, is a good example where because we were still in a modal world and we were not we hadn't yet turned into this uh common practice template you had the double leading tone cadence where your your major seven resolves up but your mm -hmm. four resolves up into yeah. the fifth and it to our ears now it sounds like freakishly modern and really cool but yeah. it it shows you that the idea of the dominant tonic polarity hadn't yet clarified itself. right and that four hadn't yet become a a true clear clear dissonance that that had to resolve into the three right um and i think what happens is for a couple hundred years then between the baroque and uh you know basically the the fracturing fragmentation uh di dissolution of of common practice harmony at around the turn of the 20th century right. there was kind of these templates and the thing that was nice about the templates just like the form of a pop song is it created kind of a shared language between the composer and the listener through the medium of performer and interpreter yeah. where you know the composer could say ah you know you're you're in, you're expecting this to go to the to the dominant but we're going to go to the the median holy cow beethoven the three. wasn't that are exciting are you kidding yeah. me you know and the, it sounds silly but the the nice thing about a shared language is that you can have a dialogue back and forth yeah i think that's an interesting concept of that it, the form helps us have a dialogue between the audience. I think that's actually really profound because I don't know, this might sound really bold, but if you're not having a dialogue with the audience, then what are you doing? Well, I think, I mean, <laughs> that's know? the, that, that's the trick. That's the hard thing about yeah. what became of music after the turn of the 20th century. Right. Right. Is it, there's lots of great stuff that sound and that you could it can sound like anything but um in that world is it still possible to have a dialogue back and forth absolutely yes and it, you could you could have a tonal you could have a a whole range of composers that sound like a thousand different things that are able to do that but when you abandon the shared language you do run the risk of monologuing yeah which is a scary world and so, so the two pieces, so I thought about this and I really want to dive into the piece, the new piece that you wrote for us, touch me not yeah, and do some form things. You bet. Another piece I'd like to dive into is maybe, maybe not as in depth, but maybe we can talk about both yeah. is long long ago by herbert howells 
mm-hmm. and we can get into that one after. Yeah. Your, we can kind of talk about maybe similarities, comparisons. We talked about two Renaissance pieces before. We'll talk about two, you know, a 20th century piece and a contemporary piece and see maybe we can dig through some of the aesthetic of the time and find those primal, eternal, like principles of each one oh, that kind of that carry through. Yeah. So before we start, let's listen to this magical piece of art in the choral media entitled Touch Me Not by one Andrew Maxfield, soon to be Dr. Maxfield. Oi. <laughs> Anything that you would like us to keep an ear out for while we listen? No, I think in general, music should just speak for itself. Okay, here it is. We got to hear the premiere recording of it last week on the, the podcast with the ACDA performance. We're going to listen to that same recording again, but maybe with different ears. Who knows? It's up to you. So here is Touch Me Not.
Okay, there you have it. Amazing. If you so, say so. <laughs> oh, it is. No, it's good. This is why I think it's so cool. Well, okay, there's a lot of reasons. But if we're, if we're trying to keep our discussion focused on form, I think the... Hmm one of the distinctive differences between different sections of the quote unquote form or quote unquote sections of the form, I should say is the, the only word that comes to mind. The first word that comes to mind is color Mm. that there. And I'm, which is really interesting because as a colorblind person, I refer to harmonies and things as color all the time, even though are you really, are you colorblind? I am. Red, really? green, colorblind. No kidding. But your shirt is clearly red. And I How think, do you know that? Okay, see, that's the thing is I'm pretty sure it is like violent red. Your shirt is it, like violent red. And it is, your sweatshirt is green, green. But it's like it, not very vibrant. You do pretty well for a colorblind person. This is my University of Wisconsin t-shirt. Oh, nice. Go Badgers. Go Badgers. Badgers. <laughs> so. Yay. It's it's kind of the 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 level of colorblindness is to the extent that my wife and my mom are all like, man, look at how pretty the mountain is with the color of the trees. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's nice. 
And then I look at it and I say, oh yeah, there is some different colors there, but it's not, it's like, everything's just really, really, really dull. So Mm. I can, I can see the color. If I look at it long and hard enough, I can kind of tell the difference, but it's just not vibrant or bright. And then sometimes I'm just dead wrong. Yeah. So you have to get your color through choral music. Yes. So I get this colorful. So there's like this, there's like this gold color at go maybe i'm being subconsciously swayed by the g of go Mm. but i hear this gold shimmer yeah the rhythmic thing with those you know clustery kind of harmonies Mm -hmm. makes me think of gold i like that my own version of gold because who knows if it's the same as everyone else's a a nice dull brass gold (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is pretty dull isn't it um yeah anyway so so, yeah color i think is to me that influences the form a lot absolutely absolutely and it's interesting because i feel like the way that we learn music in college we talk about form like it's um we have an a section and a b section and a you know, it's like we're, we're dealing with these giant Duplo the sized Legos. Yeah, I know. And it's like, uh, it, it implies that things ought to, you know, stack together like Legos or something. <laughs> right. Um, but I, but if you work your way up conceptually from counterpoint into harmony and then eventually into timbre, since timbre right. and color really are kind of a, a sort of a super fulfillment of counterpoint it's like it works its way from the basement mm. up to the top of the building mm. then i mean timbre is yeah re- wait so how so i i think i agree with you i think but i'm not sure if i could articulate why that's so like what do you, what do you mean it's the counterpoint is like the embryo foundation so to speak and it works its way up to timbre being maybe the peak of fulfillment or i don't know if it's peak of fulfillment but here's how i think about it so my mentor philip lasser whom you've um had on this podcast before um he talks about counterpoint as being kind of like the charcoal lines underneath a painting Mm. um i think about counterpoint sometimes like the you know the the math in the steel structure underneath a skyscraper yeah and it kind of explains why the thing stands up but it also it works its way out to the surface too like there you know there wouldn't really be the the painting wouldn't really be a painting without those charcoal lines underneath and the the, those lines influence what makes it to the surface and the same thing with you know a building example whatever you know shiny bits of glass or cool concrete or whatever we see on the outside um is connected profoundly to the counterpoint underneath and so when yeah, i say that yeah. timbre is a manifestation of counterpoint if you look actually i mean that that kind of um go stuff that's going on um yeah all, all of the all of that derives from the same material that started the piece where you've right. got this these little uh triangles basically do 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 yeah uh, yeah totally that, that that up down motion or if you flip it upside down down up 
uh-huh. um, at a cellular level, kind of a contrapuntal motive level. Yeah. Um, that then speeds up and goes da da da, and it uh, that's a little bit like what I'm saying, where the mm. the stuff that you don't notice below the surface is actually part of what you do notice above the surface but when you when you you know if you think about like what what makes a rothko color field work from a formal perspective well it's contrast of color certainly and then proportion certainly and pers and perspective it has to feel big to be effective all these kinds of things yeah and people see, well, maybe not you, most people see <laughs> color. <laughs> I'm sorry, Cameron. I feel really bad Dude, now. No, no, this is such a great opportunity for jokes. I, I, <laughs> I welcome it. I welcome it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you walk into a, a room with somebody for the first time and what do you notice well you notice like oh okay you kind of get a a general sense for the color of the room or maybe like the shade of the walls or the level of the light the texture of of the furniture and fabric and stuff like that and you could argue that all of that is surface level information which doesn't mean it's not important but it's like the first thing that hits your perception right yeah and there may be some like deeper unifying principle down under the architecture or the design or the whatever and you get to that later you appreciate it later but the surface stuff explains how you make sense of a place and i think surf you know color hold on on one second that's weird anyway someone's like rattling trying to get in the door but i locked it because it usually stays unlocked anyway Uh, okay but yeah anyway keep, keep going i'll cut that out all right yeah, but I mean, you walk into the room and it's these surface level things that help you make sense of where you are. And um, so timbre, mm. just like a color on a Rothko color field or the color of a wall in a room really helps orient yourself to what is part of what and how do the big pieces of stuff fit together. Right. And so I think if you take that to common practice, you think of, okay, this little motif or this harmonic language, that's kind of like the middle. I mean, that's all, I think that all like plays a part of this, this kind of texture timbre idea, Mm -hmm. but maybe on a more simple level where you're not, I mean, by the time you get to the 20th century and the contemporary area era, I feel like there's more tools in the tool belt for more uh, extreme contrasts of these same concepts. So, oh, yeah, right. It's just, you, I mean, you're doing the same thing Mozart did, the same thing Victoria did, the same thing Bach did, but there's more words in the language, so to speak, to express those same ideas of, okay, this new section, oh, I recognize that. Or sometimes I think it's really cool that you mentioned the little melodic triangle of the da da da, because mm-hmm. you can when it gets to the go, oh, 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 you can see you can visually on the page see the triangle of notes mm-hmm. in those things, which then when you are in the aleatoric beginning, it's literally boxed around this triangle, and so, and I think sometimes the audience is aware of that, and sometimes they're not covertly but they can sense it there's like a like you feel the sense of the 
of the form, even if they don't intellectually understand what's going on all the time. Uh, oh, I yeah. think, and then you know, as a conductor, as a performer, you you help the audience understand these kinds of things in concert, like program notes or the pre-concert lecture or something, and help them see it maybe a little bit more clearly. But that first impression, like you said, walking into a room, even if you don't realize it for sure why, but it all goes together. Yeah, you're not well, sure you, why. If you go to Paris and you fly in. You know, you see the Eiffel Tower is this tiny thing in the distance. And then when you get into the city, depending on your vantage point, <clears throat> you say, see this Eiffel Tower, you know, in, in the distance again. It's a little bit bigger than when you were in the air. And it doesn't occur to you, maybe, and, and then you go to the Eiffel Tower and you go up in the elevator and you explore it and you get up to the upper decks and it's cool and windy and then you get back down. And it may it may never occur to you that the whole thing is built out of triangles, because right. the the structure itself doesn't. I mean, it sort of looks like a triangle if you want to be abstract about it. But right, you know, it, it doesn't. It's not really a triangular object. It's not a pyramid or something like that. But when you when you zoom in and you start geeking out about the structure, like, oh wow, this thing is made of triangles. And I I think yeah. that. It stands on, I mean, it literally stands on its own feet, right? Like it has yeah. its own stru structural integrity that speaks for itself, whether or not you ever care about triangles. And I think um, in terms of form and timbre and music, I feel like the music that I enjoy, um, I'm on first listen, I may or may not notice the triangles metaphorically, but there's something about it that holds together. Yeah. And then if you look deeper, you're like, oh, I get it. There is some sort of like under the surface logic that ties this thing together, that makes it fit, that makes it tick, that makes it work. Cool. I'm glad that I see that now. And I'm still glad that the thing holds together. Yeah. The, stuff where I, the stuff where I get lost personally, candidly, is where you basically have timbre as content, period. Mm. Yeah. That's... I don't, I just don't get as excited about that. Yeah, no. And I, I think, and I think to me, if I'm thinking about the perspective of the common audience, that's the stuff that may be like a really cool one hit wonder, but, but composers or, or pieces of music or conductors who maybe specialize in pieces of that nature, I think they get boxed in much quicker into only that thing. And if they don't do something in that thing, there's, because there's no underlying principle that it's not it's not lasting. I think that it runs that risk. I mean, the yeah the, ups, the upside of timbre as content is that if you come up with a really cool sound, mm -hmm. it can just be so exciting and so different. Right. And you know, certainly when like the big super diatonic cluster chords hit choral music, uh, right? That was exciting and it really was thrilling. I mean, you, you know, there's nothing like that. Uh, you can think about film, you know, like scary film music has certain signature sounds that right. sometimes come out of, uh, you know, like uh, mo uh, European modernist composers or whatever. Right. And I think that all that stuff is so cool. And it doesn't, the timbre itself doesn't always answer the question, so what? And mm -hmm. where yeah. do you go? For, where do you go from here? And why would you want to hear it? you know, if not a second time, then a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and so forth. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. Well, and I think you're, I think, again, I think, so here's my question then for you. 
if you're talking about this piece, yeah, touch me not, and you're thinking about and you're approaching it from a composer standpoint or even from a conductor standpoint, where there is no recording, there's no one's done anything with this piece because you're commissioning it and it is a premiere. Like no one really, I mean, when you do your undergrad and even your master's in conducting, I think, and not, this isn't in a negative way, but I think mentors and teachers just kind of like expect you to be able to just have the skills to do that and transfer it over. Yeah. But no one really overtly comes out and says, okay, you're the first one now. This is how you approach a piece that's never been done. Yeah. And so- the formal, the idea with form is as a composer, I get stuck sometimes in form of like, oh, I have to make this really clearly A, and then this really clearly, and then I have to bring A back, or I have to do this, and then and then it feels like it's this tight form, and then I get locked in these ideas, and then it's like, okay, well, I had this idea, and now I'm stuck, and I have no idea, or the text is just this long one stanza, what is the form of it, you know, so what do you do, how do you approach form maybe if if it's a choral work versus maybe absolute music with no text yeah how do you like as a composer when do in your process do you start thinking about form and then how do what do you do about it well if there's a text the text sometimes answers a lot of those questions or at least kind of helps frame those questions yeah. And in the case of this text, which is John 20, 17 from the New Testament, um, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, it's a peculiar text. I don't think it's been set often. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, ha- I that uh, was one of the first reasons I decided to commission it in the first place. Yeah. Because I was putting together Holy Week, and I was like, this would be a really cool, you know, everyone's done the he is not here. He has risen. But I was like, but what about when Christ himself speaks, you know, touch me not like that's the first, that's the first thing we hear after the resurrection. Where is that text? And I was like, Andrew would kill this (laughs) in a good way. As the teenagers say, not as the (laughs) academics say, as the teenagers say, dude, you're killing it. Okay. Continue. (laughs) Well, I just, you know, I read the text. Jesus saith unto her, which is a, I mean, it's, uh, that's like stage directions, basically. <clears throat> Touch me not, punctuation, for I am not ascend- yet ascended to my father, punctuation, but go to my brethren and say unto them, punctuation, I ascend unto my father, punctuation, and your father, punctuation, and to my God, punctuation, and your God. And I'm looking at each of these little phrases and how they're stitched together and also i'm scanning for singable vowels Mm. because we sing vowels and we punctuate with consonants Mm. Um, and i'm also looking for words that feel important or are sort of uh, full of potential so for example for example the word ascended yeah you know that's that's an exciting word it runs the risk of being melodramatic if it's always ascended you know like right right (laughs) so i had to rein rein that in uh but of course like i ascend 
I ascend. That's like the story. That's what we're talking about here. That's the name so, of the whole program yeah. for ACDA. Yeah. And then the other word that stuck out to me is go. Hmm. Yeah. Because that's an imperative verb. It's literally what Jesus is telling her to do. Go. And it's so strong. Yeah. Like yes, it, I know. From a from a just a pronunciation perspective. Yeah, it's so guttural. Good. Boom. Boom. And it has the beautiful O sound, which you can just sing forever. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And so I looked at that and I thought, go in a way is sort of the message of this verse and then i i i said uh, i i thought to myself well what are the basic moods hmm. that i want to create and a, a mentor of mine jack redford he's a composer of choral and orchestral music particularly film score music cool um he says that he likes to start a piece by thinking about contrasts sort of mm. like dipoles or like yin and yang kind of thing it's like yeah the difference between spicy and sweet between heavy and light between tense yeah. and relaxed right like he's setting up all of these kind of um op you know these opposites op opposites because when he when how this all flows into form I mean, people talk about form like it may be complex, but what is form really? Like binary, ternary, whatever. It's just contrasts. And mm. you have to make sense out of, you You can choose to make sense out of contrasts and you can choose whether your listener experiences contrasts in this way or that way. They're just kind of design decisions. But when I looked at that, I thought, well, okay, so the early moods touch me not for i'm not yet ascended to my father that's going to have sort of a, a mysterious right. sound to it um not creepy mysterious but like mystical uh unexpected um yeah that, that kind of thing but go and tell them that i ascend to my god and your god that will be that'll feel important it'll mm -hmm. feel pointed it'll feel uh, laden with um, possibility, hope, exuberance. Yeah, um, cool. The tempo will pick up, this kind of thing. And so really it's saying, all right, we've got, uh, you know, like Billy Collins talking about poetry. He, he says that, you know, the word stanza that you encounter in poetry um, comes from the word room in Italian. Mm. And so a poem is kind of like, Taking people, like a house. A, taking people on a tour and each stanza is a different room that you show off. And then at some point the tour is over, right? Yeah. And whoa. So I'm, <laughs> That's <laughs> mind blowing to me. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this and I think, well, it's not a very long text. You know, this is not a room. This is not a house that has 25 rooms in it. Right. This is the size house that has, you know, two rooms basically yeah and uh we're going to start with one go into the other and then we'll step back into the first and then we'll move through the other out of the house yeah yeah that's awesome and i think i think you're a, man the the way you approach the text is i really like that idea of opposites because that can be 
like the largest scale you can imagine of like a set of pieces mm-hmm. and each piece is a contrast sure. or, or you can talk about that within a piece of just like larger sections. Then you can break that down into phrases that have opposite. You can break that down into harmonies that have opposite. Like you can break that down into like the smallest cell of this idea of balance. I think that's something that, you know, I, I know nothing obviously about visual art. I know I have a lot of great uh, skills in the color realm that would prepare me for a great <laughs> life of art, but the first time I encountered things about real art is when I watched Sunday in the park with George by Stephen Sondheim. And, you know, yeah. he's like color composition balance, you know, and I'm just like composition. What is he even talking about? Yeah. That's a music term balance. And then I was like, okay, I guess I can see balance, but still like, so it's the same concept and it doesn't, and it goes even beyond art of, okay. The bell rang. Nice. Longest bell of my life. Anyway, it goes <laughs> beyond art into like any creative field of like this idea of balance and opposites pulling to create this kind of direction and i think that's what gives it the direction is when you have these balance that build to a point then the point you recede away from the point that's another version of this kind of balance in time as well so i don't know you have the golden mean that helps and Oh yeah. So so all of those things, whether you're talking about time, whether you're talking about harmony, whether you're talking about melody, whether you're talking any any anyway, anything that balance really can be is something that I did not before this episode, this interview, did not think about in its contribution to form. Well, it's funny because you think about painting and uh literature and music and sculpture and architecture and everything right. as, be, as being different but they all have in common this fact that we have they that they, they obsess over details that make something hold together yeah like why does this thing work why does this thing make sense what are the qualities the proportions the connections and they all have in their own way this conversation about form which is what is the what is the totality of this thing and why does it hold together yeah dang so cool so cool well the bell rang i'm gonna go teach students but i think that's a really great stopping point and a great illustration about form 2.0 more yeah. into more into the nitty gritty a little bit of you know these building blocks and what kind of things you use when you approach a new piece and how you look at the text and things like that i think that's really cool that's really should cool we, uh, should we rock some howls next time yeah let's rock some howls next time what i think we should do with howls just to hold ourselves accountable to us each other and the audience so we should maybe dive a little bit into maybe a couple different facets of how does counter, what role does counterpoint play? What role does harmony play? What role does line play? How does that all contribute to the form? How does that contribute to his, you know, rhetoric or whatever, you know, I think we can talk about all kinds of things. Yep. 
dive into this piece. There's a really cool, just as a preview for anybody, we're going to talk about the piece long, long ago by Herbert Howells. Um, there's a really great uh, episode of Sing the Score by the conductor of E. Fagiolini. Um, and he, they go through and they talk about Herbert Howells and, and this piece a lot. They, they, he actually interviews Paul Spicer, who is a student of Herbert Howells and wrote his biography. So there's oh, yeah. a lot about like his life in there. And so we'll, we'll get into more, a little bit more of the nuts and bolts uh, of the piece itself as it relates to maybe some of these early music concepts. But if you want some more background for those of you listening, you can go watch that episode before our next episode, like premieres or launches. So you can get, be a little bit familiar with the piece before you, uh, before we dive in. Yeah. Yeah. Let's okay. rock it. Okay. Till next episode, my friend. Go do some Ow. counterpoint. Outro. 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 We have the best outro music anyone's ever thought of. <laughs> Why aren't we famous? <laughs>